All right, so we're, we're, we're coming to the conclusion of a series on the 12, the 12 apostles, looking at their lives, looking at the way in which God used them, shaped them, mold them, didn't strip away their identities the way he made them, but actually kind of steered them, moved them, gave them, uh, gave them a call, gave them a purpose, and used their strengths that had been being used in directions and areas that maybe weren't in God's plan to fulfill God's plan and purposes. Today, we're going to talk about one that technically wasn't one of the 12, depending upon how you do math, um, or depending upon how you read your Bible, and that is the Apostle Paul. It's the uh, 12 minus 1 plus 1 plus 1 more. <laughs> All right? So, yeah, we got at least 13. Nonetheless, this is the life of Paul we're going to talk about, who himself refers to his call and to his birth into apostleship as abnormal. He didn't fit the mold the way the rest of the 11 plus 1 did. And that specifically was that he wasn't walking with Jesus prior to Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. But he did have an encounter, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, with the resurrected Jesus. So the story of Paul begins really as a story of Saul, another name change we have, right? Saul versus slash Paul was a, and I'll probably use those back and forth, trying to keep up really hard to pick up the difference between Saul and Paul and know who you're. He was, he was a Jew, and he was also though a Roman citizen. Very unique situation. He was also a murderer. God calls murderers? Wow. Paul was also a highly trained teacher. He went to the Pharisaical school according to his own words of Gamaliel in the tradition of Hillel. However, his behaviors prior to his quote-unquote conversion seem to be more in keeping with the teaching of Shammai. If that doesn't make any sense to you, don't worry about it. If it does, then that's cool, right? He was a zealous Jew. He wasn't just a Jew. He was a zealous Jew. In other words, he was passionate about what he was doing. He wasn't just some dude, you know, hanging out at the local market and just doing his own thing. He was very, very passionate about what he felt called to do and who he was called to be. And that was both prior to his conversion experience and after. He was a very zealous person. He, as I already mentioned, had an encounter with Jesus, after which he became a, you could say, I suppose, a church planter. Probably would be more appropriate to say a organizer of small communities of people wanting to follow Jesus as the way within different towns that he encountered. But church planner just rolls off the tongue so much easier. Okay? He was, during his time in serving Jesus, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was threatened, he was arrested, and he was imprisoned. He wrote, a significant portion of our New Testament. They were letters. Some people traditionally would say 13 
of the New Testament books were written by him, and they were epistles, they were letters, they were written to communities of people he knew or knew of. Maybe as few as eight were penned by him. Our first introduction to Saul, later to become Paul, is, is here in Acts, and I want to read it for you. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, we'll talk about what this is in a minute, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Why was Stephen stoned? We've got to talk a little bit about what's going on here before we talk too much about Saul. Why was Stephen stoned? His speeches, right? But what about them? He was already accused in 6.13 of being against the holy place. That what Stephen was doing, what Stephen was teaching, was in opposition to the holy place, which would have been Jerusalem. They were understanding that what Stephen was teaching was that it was going to be destroyed. And if that wasn't bad enough, he was also teaching that the law should be changed or destroyed. That circumcision would be something different than what they understood it to be. Stephen said something bold to this group of Jews that ultimately then kill him. He says that their participation in killing Jesus made them lawbreakers. So on top of this idea to a bunch of pious Jews, a bunch of devout Jews that, well, the temple is going to be destroyed, and yeah, circumcision is something different than what you think it is. On top of that, he accuses them of being lawbreakers because of their participation in killing Jesus. He says, you stiff-necked people, this is Stephen talking, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. Wow. Calling the righteous elites who prided themselves in keeping the law, lawbreakers, was like, ooh. <laughs> it's like fun to a Patriots fan and telling them they're not a Patriots fan at all. That's way worse than that. Way more like going to a Seahawks fan. <laughs> no, they're not a Seahawks fan. <laughs> 
No, this is a big deal. I mean, it is. It would be people that have devoted their whole lives to being the best they could possibly be at keeping something. In this case, keeping the law. Their whole lives were consumed by this. And Stephen is saying to them, you're lawbreakers. <laughs> you're lawbreakers. He says that they had missed, that Israel's story had reached its climax in a crucified and resurrected Messiah. That's what was getting so many people in trouble. This idea that Jesus, this seemingly failed Messiah, this person has been crucified on a tree, cursed according to the law, was actually truly the Messiah. And the people of God, people that thought they were the people of God, didn't think highly of that message. It didn't make any sense to them. It wasn't what they were expecting. It's not heresy just because the ideas were wrong in their minds. In the Jews that stoned and killed Stephen, it wasn't just simply the idea of that, that this man was Messiah. It was what it meant concerning everything that they held to be true. It challenged them at the core of their existence, at the core of their faith, at the core of their history. It just was not working out the way that they thought it should. They had in their minds firmly rooted, this is what Messiah was going to come. This is what Messiah was going to do. And it was, it was obliterated. Probably, probably the most challenging thing for the Jews of Jesus' day that were not seeing him as Messiah was the recognition that what Jesus was, had done and was doing was for the sake of the world, not just for the sake of the Jews. I think, especially in light of Peter's speech that I'll read part of to you in a second, that comes before the stoning of Stephen. Don't worry, we will get to Saul in a minute. I think part of what Stephen has in mind when he talks about not paying attention to what the prophets had said before them was what Joel quotes, Paul, Paul quotes from Joel in Acts 2, 17 through 21. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see vision, visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. I will pour out my spirit on all people. All people. This is the hope that they had that they were missing, among other things, that was leading them to do things like stone a person like Stephen. Gentile inclusion into the covenant people of God? Are you kidding me? How could that possibly be what God's plans are? We were sure we had it and figured out exactly what God was going to do. That was their mentality. That was their thinking. They were hard-headed nationalists led by xenophobia. 
we are the people of God and nobody else is the people of God and God is going to come and rescue us and he's not going to come and rescue anybody else. That was, that was a significant part of the reason they were killing people like Stephen. So, let's get to Saul. This first example we have of something done with him, to him, is a bunch of people laying their coats at his feet while a man is being stoned to death because he wants to talk about worship being done in spirit, not in Jerusalem, and that your body is the temple, and that circumcision is the circumcision of the heart, and that God loves everyone, not just Israel. Why did they lay their coats at his feet while they were stoning this man? It's pretty simple. It's an indication that he had an official part in Stephen's stoning. Saul was playing a role. Yeah, I don't know that we can say whether or not he actually picked up a rock. It doesn't sound like he did. We don't actually know for sure that he some, himself took anybody's life, this being Saul. We don't know that for sure. But he is playing that role of the person who is instigating, who is encouraging, who is pursuing the killing. And because of that, he is as guilty as anybody who picked up a stone and threw it at him. He agrees with the people that are opposing people like Stephen. He agrees, like, are you seriously going to tell me, this is Saul's line of thinking, that all of this talk of God's covenant people being, is, being Israel is, is really just to point out the circumcision, not of the body, but circumcision of the heart? And that Jerusalem isn't the place you have to worship God? Are you really, all of this, Paul knew already, Saul knew already where this was going, and this was not where it was going. The idea that God was going to love and embrace and, and be for the Gentiles? No, 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 that's not, what, that's not where this is going. This is what Saul's thinking. This is not where this is going. He did not like Jesus. He didn't like Jesus' message. And he didn't like anybody proclaiming Jesus' message to the world. Because these were a bunch of heretics, not just in words, but in deeds. The crazy notion of loving Romans. Loving Gentiles. I'm going to skip ahead in Acts to chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. You just kind of visualize that? Like, I see this as like murderous threats, this violent, almost flame-looking stuff coming out of Saul's mouth. And he just wants to devour the Lord's disciples. So he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. You see that? Saw a lot of lightning flashing in the sky last night. 
flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the voice, they heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go into the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem, Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night he kept close watch on the city gates in order to they kept a close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And now in Damascus, he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took 
him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit increased in numbers. So this story begins with Paul still uttering murderous threats. I think it's his way, right? He lives by intimidation. Do you know anybody that does that? Maybe you've done that in your life at some point in time. Threatening people. Paul was threatening imprisonment. Why does he do that? We're going to return to the point. He thinks he's right. He thinks he sees clearly. He thinks he knows what God is up to. He's positive of it. He's absolutely religiously positive of what he is doing. Buys into it entirely. He thinks he sees everything like God sees it. He thinks he is righteous. He thinks he is the most righteous man in all the land at this point. He thinks he's doing God's work. Sometimes it's hard for us, I think, to get that in our minds. I know it is for me. That somebody like Paul, or people today like Paul, that aren't serving Jesus, they think what they're doing is right. They don't think what they're doing is wrong. It's not like people are just like, okay, I'm just going to be a horrible person and do what's really, really wrong to everybody. Sometimes people, they think what they're doing is absolutely right in serving God by, in this case, killing people. People that kill people in the name of God today think they're doing what is right. I just want to point out, this is one of those places where we hear of how the earliest Christians referred to themselves or how they were referred to. People of the way. Paul was going to persecute the people of the way, the people that were following in Jesus' way, trying to live out everything that he taught about what God is really like, about the kingdom of God, about life in Jesus. Some refer to this story as Paul's conversion, and I think I did that earlier. I put in like little quotes, Paul's conversion. It's kind of not a conversion per se, but rather Saul, through his encounter with Jesus, has embraced, it's embraced Jesus as the continuation, the fulfillment, or if you will, the climax of the story of Israel. That's what Paul is actually embracing. Not some new thing, not something that has never existed before. There's a sense, I suppose, in which that's true. But it's the direction of where his hope should have been pointing to the whole time. As Joel the prophet has already talked about. God is moving in the direction of pouring his spirit out on all flesh. He wants to redeem the whole world. This is where Israel's story was going the whole time, and somehow what happens in this encounter, Jesus, Paul starts with Jesus, Paul starts to get that. He starts to reconsider, to rethink everything that he thought he knew for sure, which is amazing, and, and it probably takes an encounter like this for a guy like Saul. It probably takes an encounter like this for all of us, some sort be moving in, your direct, in, in a direction in your whole life where you have sold out in every way, shape, and form to an idea that you find out is wrong? It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? To persecute the body of Christ is to persecute Christ. And I would even go so far as to say to ignore the need 
is to persecute Christ. To not care about the needs of the people around us is to persecute Christ. Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, and the sheep and the goats separated by who loved the least of these. It's not just a matter of making people the least of these, but it's a matter of ignoring the needs of the people that, were, that are already the least of these. And Jesus calls us to care about the least of these. He directly associates himself with the least of these. When you have done this unto the least of these, you've done this unto me. Jesus says, or when you've not done this unto the least of these, you've not done this unto me. When you've persecuted my people who are the least of these, you've persecuted me. Why are you doing that? Jesus asks. It's challenging to think about the fact that to ignore the needs of people isn't much better than to actually harm people. Pretty challenging thought. So Paul goes after this experience with Jesus being born and called to be a, an apostle, one sent to the Gentiles. He has this experience. He goes to Damascus. And he's, he's blind. He can't. For three days, he's blind. He can't see. He can't see anything. Has anybody ever been temporarily blinded? When I was, I was about, I must have been 14 years old, 13 or 14 years old. I was, uh, I was in the, she the Shehalis River. I think it was the Shehalis in Shehalis, <laughs> where that goes, right? Anyway, um, I was at this barbecue picnic thing, and we were having all kinds of fun, and we were swimming in the river. And it was like really silty. And we were diving down and we were grabbing big handfuls of sand. And we were just like hucking at each other as, as hard as we could. And we just thought it was great fun, right? It was just kind of awesome. And, and until one time I, I see somebody that I'm going to swim over and I'm going to come up right in front of them and I'm going to hit them with a handful of sand, right? Little do I know that they see me under the water swimming over, and so they hit me with a handful of sand at the silt or whatever. At the same time, I'm coming out of the water with my eyes wide open because I'm looking for my target, right? And it just pops that sand in my eyes. Just like they're still, I just like, they, they carry me out of the water. They bring me over to this water faucet that's at one of the outdoor barbecue stations, and they turn the water on. They're holding my eyes open. They're just trying to get all this silt out of my eyes, and they just, they can't get it out. And so they take me to the hospital, and the doctor, he like spends, I don't, I was like, spell like forever. Q-tips just like scraping the sand out of my eyes. I mean, it was just horrible. And, and I, I like for three or four days, I had to walk around with patches on both of my eyes. Walk around. I had to be with patches over my eyes. Because they just wanted, I guess, to let my eyes heal without my eyeballs moving around and everything. And it was hugely disorienting. It was frustrating. Like, I felt like I didn't even know who I was in some ways. I had to literally have people take care of me, feed me. I mean, there's a few things I could do for myself, praise God. But, 
But it was really, really difficult. It's really difficult to deal with. And I think about that when I read Paul's story. How difficult that must have been. The one thing that it afforded me when I was a kid was paying attention to other things other than looking at stuff. Listening. Spending time, more time listening. Sometimes God has to do that just to get our attention. I have a question. Did God blind Saul? Or was Saul already blind and God let him see? Did God blind Saul? Or was Saul already blind and God let him see? Because he woke up, or came out of the darkness, I suppose. Not woke up. I think he was sleeping when Ananias went to him. He came out of that darkness when those scales fell from his eyes. He saw things differently. He saw things differently. Ananias was sent to Saul so that you may see and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And yeah, the scales fell from his eyes and he physically was able to see, but I think we're talking about spiritual seeing. That everything was radically different in how he viewed what God was up to through that experience. I mean, it's not like he just had it all figured out anew, right? But at least he came to the point of realizing that he didn't have it all figured out before. That he had this encounter with the resurrected Jesus on this road when he was going to kill a bunch of people or participate with their arrest and killing, Jesus met him in that place and something changed. It had to with an encounter like that. It had to. So it, I suppose we could say in the answer to this question, scales, but what was blinding Saul? What was blinding Saul to seeing what God was really up to? What's the spiritual equivalent of the scales that were over his eyes? Sin? Anger? I mean, I think it in part comes back to this prideful notion that we got it all figured out. We know exactly, yeah, you go, there you go. Got it all figured out. We know what we're doing. God, I, I've got this. I know that you don't like, you know, people that have been killed on trees because they're cursed, so... Anybody that's trying to talk about this person being a man of God, or let alone resurrected, or let alone yet Lord, I'll go take care of him for you. I know that's not the way you roll. Do we do that? Do we just think we got it all figured out? Even as Christians sometimes, do we just think we got it all figured out? Because we don't. It's part of where our heritage lies, is embracing that, God is a little bit mysterious at times. And while he does reveal things to us and there's things that we can know, we need to be humble. We need to be humble. That kind of pride, being positive, we got it all figured out. Like scales that blind us. I mean, I see it all the time. I've seen it in myself. I see it in myself. I see it. In the church, 
failure to pay attention to people enough to hear their stories to understand why it is they do what they do. And I'm positive that God hates them. It happens way, way too often. I think Saul had a, a lack of empathy. When you hear him describe himself, he's like the perfect Jewish guy. Circumcised on the correct day, right? He had the right studies, studied under the right people. He had all what seemed like the right answers. Like he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says. He, he knew it all. And he didn't get anything at the same time. He lacked empathy. He lacked an ability to understand what other people in this world go through. A lack of understanding that God created everything and loves everything. That Gentiles were in no less loved by God than the Jews were. No more loved, no less loved. I think Paul... Saul came to see, as time went on, that God's plan was fulfilled in Jesus. That the wisdom that he talks about, that is Christ crucified, was the plan to save not just the Jews, but the whole world. That this crucified and resurrected Jesus was Messiah. That God, through Jesus, was pouring out the Spirit on all who believed. That God didn't intend to be worshipped in a box in Jerusalem. But that He intended to put His Spirit in us. And have us worship Him in truth and spirit wherever we find ourselves. You know, like, this is all God's. Right? Not when we're just, not just when we're in this space. Like if you have the notion sometimes when, when I've had the notion before, I better better make sure I say some like confessional prayer on my way into the church building because I might not live if I if I don't. The same God is outside this door. <laughs> you know? He knows and sees what's going on. He wants to be worshipped in spirit, not in a building. Not, not that it can't be in a building, right? Saul saw that, that God truly was the God of not just the Jews and of the Gentiles. He started to see how the whole narrative of God's history with the people of Israel was leading to this moment of power being manifest in weakness in death, being overcome by dying and surrendering to the power of God. And that killing people in the name of God was not the way forward for the kingdom of God. You know, he changes, he changes his orientation, Paul does. But he changes also the way he does everything. He doesn't start, if he's killing in the name of God, in the name of the law, 
in the name of let's destroy the Gentiles. He changes everything about how he proclaims the good news to the Gentiles. He doesn't run around then and kill other people. That's not the way this kingdom works. Not the way Jesus' kingdom works. He does, he, none of the apostles do that. None of them then take up the sword to see forward the kingdom of God. Everything is changed for all the apostles, but particularly for the Saul, his method of serving God, his way of serving God has changed. He goes from the guy who is the persecute or to the persecuted. Two times in that text that we just read, people are trying to kill him. And he doesn't try and kill him back. Something radically changed for him. What maybe, and this is my closing thought. It doesn't mean it's going to be short. What maybe are you blind to? Are you willing to even embrace that there are things that are true of God that you're blind to? Maybe it's some of the things that you're absolutely, utterly positive you're right about. Are you willing to bring all of those things before God and let Him move and guide and change you? Because again, that's one of the most dangerous things about spiritual blindnesses. So when we're spiritually blind, we think we can see. We think we got it figured out. We think we know the right answers. We think we know the right approaches. We think we know the heart of God. We have to be willing to surrender all of those things at the foot of the cross and let Jesus transform what we think. And now, don't hear me wrong, because I'm sure some of you are positive you're right about some things that are actually right. I'm sure that's the case. But we have to bring everything before Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Just as Jewish nationalism died on the cross, nationalism should die on the cross. Whether that be German nationalism, Mexican nationalism, American nationalism. And never should we confuse our King Jesus and his kingdom with any nation. When people do that, all of a sudden you get people justifying lots of behaviors that look nothing like Jesus. Jesus never promised us as his followers to be rich. He didn't. 
almost as quite the opposite. To have our, our daily bread. If you knew if you know of somebody that has their daily bread every day and that's all they got, would you call them rich? Maybe in some ways, but certainly not monetarily. We cannot allow our decisions to be dictated by our desire to be rich if our allegiance is to Jesus. I don't know how else to say that. And I know we're in a point in this country's history that is extremely crazy and difficult. And it feels hopeless. It feels like whatever decision you make and whatever direction you turn, there isn't a good one. And I don't know what to say about that other than seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else that we think that we have to have and the things that we really do have to have will come. We have to allow Jesus' kingdom and Jesus himself to be moving in us to lead us to the decisions that we make. I think, and I'm going to, obviously I've been dancing around topics of elections and presidential campaigns. I hope you picked up on that. It's my, it's, it's my absolute desire. So, somebody asked me a long time ago, so uh, how do you talk politics in the church? And I was like, well, I think they have a lot to do with each other depending upon how you define politics. But my desire is to help people become so formed in Christ Jesus that they're able to make decisions without me telling them what decisions I think that they should make because I don't think that that's my place. I do think my place is to help people become formed in Christ so that when you make decisions and whatever that decision is, whether it's how to raise your kids or who to vote for in an election, that that formation in Christ is what's helping you make those decisions. So, whatever, whatever decisions you make when it comes to elections, let's just be realistic about what is leading and what is guiding us. Check yourself. If you're voting because you want to be rich, Bring that to Jesus. If that's what's leading and guiding your decisions. If you are terrified at one person or another that could be elected, bring that to Jesus. I said this way early on. It seems as though during the most difficult times in the church's history, the church has flourished. We don't need to fear it. We don't need to fear the most difficult of times. Because our, our God is bigger than the most difficult of times. And He causes us to flourish. Maybe not in the ways that we want to, but He causes us to flourish during those most difficult of times. So whatever 
comes our way. We don't have to be led by fear. We don't have to be led by personal gain. We can, we can bring all of this stuff to the foot of the cross, even the stuff that we are positive, but positive we know about, and let Jesus form us. So, are there some things that you're blind to? I'll answer myself. Jesus helps us to see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Saul, whose life you transformed, and who you gave a radically different vision for this world and your participation in this world too. Help us to have a radically different view of the world in which you act in the world in which you are, are active. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be concerned with the things that you are concerned about. Help us to trust you. Help us not to compromise the things of the kingdom of God for the things of the kingdoms of this world. Thank you that we sometimes do things like Blind us so that we can see. You reorient us during that time of blindness. And you give us sight. You give us renewed hope. You give us a renewed vision for the things that you're doing. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you dwell in us. Thank you that you you cut away the callousness of our hearts. Thank you that we, most of whom here are Gentiles, get to glimpse you, Lord Jesus, through what you have done through the people of Israel and that you involve us and invite us into being your covenant people. Just answer our prayers, Lord Jesus, that, that we would truly have seeking your kingdom before, before anything else. Let us have a vision of you, Jesus, high and lifted up. A lamb who was slain, who was also a lion. Help us, Lord Jesus, to, to know that the kingdom isn't about persecuting people and isn't about killing people, but it's about being willing to endure persecution, even under the point of death, for the sake of your kingdom, for the glory of your name, and for the message that that sends to the world around us. We love you.